It's, in fact, when we're looking at the, when we're studying the, the people in the region of Galatia, now don't forget Galatia was a region in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't just one locale, it was a whole region, and there were several churches there. Okay? And Paul had worked really hard in that area. He really got in there and got the approach. Okay? And it wasn't long after he left, a very short time, that uh, there started having been some problems. History teaches us that that was because of the efforts of these Judaizers, these people who were coming in. They were literally following Paul around, okay? He, he would go someplace and then they'd come in right after him, okay? This goes back to the difficulties or the problems that we're having in uh, Acts chapter 15 where you read about the Council of Jerusalem where they all got together to discuss some of these things, especially these new Gentile converts, okay? These, these are Gentile converts to Christianity, and this was an issue, okay? And it didn't set well with some people, okay? And so... Uh, these people literally followed Paul, and for some reason they had it in for Paul. And and I can only speculate that it was because that he was he, Paul was probably perceived as a turncoat in some circles. You understand what I mean by that? Uh, this is a man who was prominent in this community. Okay. And he has literally left it behind. And you notice that Paul never, Paul is always regrets his uh, actions as it pertains to as it pertains to his persecuting the church early on. Paul never makes an apology though for being a Jew. Okay, for being a he. Let me let me change. Paul never makes apologies for being a Hebrew and being uh, being zealous in in what he believed was true because for a time it was true. Okay, he was zealous to be obedient to God. He doesn't make apology for that because at one time, at one point in time, he was correct in doing so, okay? As he grew from a child into early manhood, he, he, he learned the scriptures. He, he, he was zealous for being uh, obedient to God. But by leaving all that behind, he is saying to some other people, or they perceive it, the way they perceive that is uh, they took it personally. And they weren't ready to leave these things behind. Because don't forget that a lot of the things that accompanied their way of life was not just religious influence, but it was political power. Okay? And it was worldly prestige. And here's Paul, and they, now they see Paul as a threat to them. Okay? There is some speculation from history 
we're not going to speculate too much, but there is speculation from history that there were some people, I'm not suggesting all of these, this whole group of people, but there was some of these people who were actually posing as Christians to come in and then undermine the teachings of Paul just for their own benefit, okay? Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that there's not all these people were not believers, okay? But, I, but, but history teaches that there may have been a small group of them who were actually uh, provocateurs, okay? So uh, that's what we're setting up here as we go into uh, Galatians chapter 2. Now, some of these people were believers, and they honestly believed that these Gentiles must become converts to Judaism before they could become a Christian, okay? And they were binding that on these people, okay? That undermines the gospel that Paul is preaching. And this gets into the issue of legalism, which we've been talking about. We're going to finish talking about that here in just a minute. Okay? Um, but how does this all have a, 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 a practical application for us today? Is that we deal with some of the same issues. They may not manifest themselves in the same way, but they're the same issue nonetheless. Okay, so uh, you know we we have we have uh, we deal with legalism or an attitude of legalism uh, either in uh, the religious world around us, either either directly or indirectly. And I say indirectly because. There's a, there's a misunderstanding of what legalism actually is. It's one of those terms that gets thrown around and gets slapped onto something, but really it's a misappropriation of the term, okay, because there's a lack of understanding of what it really is. So that's, we're going to finish up talking about these things today, and then we're going into Galatians chapter 2. Shannon, would you lead us in a word of prayer, please, sir? Father God, we come to you right now as we listen to this word, Father God, this There's a, it's been a couple of weeks ago, uh, the July 27th issue of the Gospel Minutes, the featured article was God's Cure for Hydrophobia. Did anybody read that? Did you read it? Sam, did you read it? Uh, did, you, did you notice, I don't know if you remember it right off, but do you remember him talking about Noah and Naaman and, you know, them doing what God said, the point that the, that the author of the article is making is that these people did not save themselves simply, or they, they did not save themselves by obeying God, and they didn't have any grounds to say that they had saved themselves when they obeyed God. <laughs> but they obeyed God nonetheless, and that resulted in God saving them, okay? God does the saving, and it's his choice to do it or not, okay? But 
obedience, he has, understand something, God has, uh, God has designed things so that our obedience is integral into what he's doing. It's, it's him that's integrating our obedience into his plan. That, that's, his, that's his doing. That's his working. Okay? It's our obedience, but it's his work. Is that a good way to say that? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, and to me, that simply put. It's God's plan. It's God's work. It's his choice to integrate our obedience into what he's doing. It's, he could reject our obedience. He's, he, he's, he's all-powerful. Okay? He has all power and all authority. He chooses and he kindly, and his grace... It's, his, it's God's grace that he decides, he chooses, forgiveness takes place in the mind of God, that he, that he will integrate our obedience into, his, into him, what he's doing. Okay? It's not, it's, our, it's not our action that convinces God. It's simply that he has ordained that he will accept our obedience. Okay? And, but, but when we're talking about entering into relations with God, entering into a relationship with God through Jesus, it's 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 a function of God's grace that He is allowing for our obedience to be a part of that. If God, listen carefully. If God decided to take you by force, could He do it? I'm going to take you and make you mine. And you will be subject to me. I will do this. He can do it. But he chooses a different way. He integrates our obedience into his plan so that the love will be reciprocal. Does that make sense? In other words, he allows us to choose him. And it speaks of God's love and his grace that he demonstrates that restraint. He's actually, he has all power, but he is demonstrating restraint. I'm not talking about there's a limit on what he can do, but I think he chooses Help me, help, me, help me explain this. He's choosing to do what? Give us breakers. And I guess we've already, I guess we're, I guess we're beating the horse here, but it's, he's choosing, he's allowing for us to choose him. Okay. Now, remember last week we left off, we were talking about, you know, the tax collector, and the Pharisee had come and they were praying and the Pharisee was talking about, man, I do all this stuff, so, you know. And really, there's a fallacy in the attitude. What he was saying is, is you know, look how good I am. I don't need any forgiveness. I, I do all these things, okay? But both James and in John's writings, they both point out that if you 
fail in one point of the law, then you are guilty of what? The whole law. What this man is not doing is taking into account any the slightest infraction on his part. He's not even taking that into consideration. Okay? But by examining himself and comparing himself to some standard that he has set, that not that God has set, but some standard that he has set, it's arbitrary. He says, I compare myself to that and I'm, I'm good. That's legalism. Okay? That's legalism. <coughs> chapter 3, Paul uh, puts into perspective the whole issue of the law. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in, va in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does so then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works Miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul's asking these Galatians, he said, you've heard a lot of things and you've seen a lot of things. Uh, the Spirit of God has demonstrated power among you. Obviously, there were miracles that took place for, for them to be witness of. Now, did, did all that come about when they, they, the Galatians, Gentiles, had become observant to the law of Moses? Or did that happen when they came to, Je uh, came to faith uh, in Jesus? Right. That's right. Because Paul didn't even bring it, bring it, bring it up. Okay? It wasn't part of his message to them. It didn't even apply to them. Okay? What he's saying is, is God has proven to you that you heard correctly, okay, by demonstrating power among you. 
Now, um, but he goes on, and what's interesting is he begins to explain some things that don't really even necessarily apply to them, but he brings it up now that it's become an issue, okay? And that is the, the relationship of the law to the, new, to the new law that we have in Christ, okay? And that's... The dog eat those two? Huh? Did the dog eat those two? No, he didn't eat them. Oh, okay. Look in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Um, and then earlier in, in Galatians chapter 3, and this idea of freedom, we need to keep that in our mind because that's what he's trying to impress upon these people is that you're free. And there is an element that's trying to enslave you, okay? But you don't really even understand what they're talking about, okay? He says in Galatians chapter 3, and starting in verse 10, for as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. He's, he's trying to demonstrate to these people the severity of trying to live under that law. Okay? What he's trying, he's making a distinction between, you know, if you if you live under the law and you don't follow the law precisely. Or if you if there if you fail in some regard, you're cursed. Not so in Jesus Christ. You have freedom in Jesus. Okay. The blood of Jesus is our continual sacrifice. It continually cleanses. He is our perpetual priest. Okay. He offers him. He his sacrifice is good for all time. Okay. However, the law is not of faith. Verse twelve. On the contrary, who who practice them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Remember that God promised Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through his seed. Jew and Gentile alike. Now, <clears throat> now I got a couple of things here out of <clears throat> Ed Wharton's book that I've been talking about every once in a while, and I'm not following this. This idea of faith in Christ as compared to uh, the law of Moses. He says faith must have an object. Okay? It, you know, our faith has to be directed at something. It has to, 
and we've talked about that before. It has to have a direction. It's got to have something that we put that we put upon. Faith cannot. This is what he writes. Faith cannot exist in a vacuum. In order to exist, faith must be in something or someone. It must have an object in which to believe. Galatians teaches that the faith that saves must have Christ as the object of that faith. Our faith must be in Christ. He is the object of our trust. But when the New Testament speaks of the faith, it does not refer to the act of believing. Did you get that? When the New Testament refers to the faith, it does not refer to the act of believing, but rather to the thing believed. The objective of Christian faith, as distinguished for an illustration from the Islamic faith or the Jewish faith, is that body of apostolic teaching that makes Christianity what it is. The thing believed. Okay? The teaching believed. In other words. It is the thing preached. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul talks about the message that he had preached to the Galatians. Uh, the, thing, the, the thing preached, the thing believed. In Galatians chapter 3, he's talking about when you believed, when you became obedient to the faith, certain things happened among you. And we, he doesn't say precisely, but we know that they were miraculous. <coughs> they were signs and wonders. That happened as a result of them embracing the faith. Okay? And it was God's demonstration that he was among them, that his Holy Spirit was among them and in them. Okay? That's <laughs> the thing obeyed, according to Acts chapter 6. The thing we strive for, and distinctive belief common to the household of faith. Our personal faith, the act of believing and trusting in Christ, is generated by the proclamation of the distinctive Christian faith. Make a distinction between the faith, the thing believed, and fact, and, and faith, the act of believing and obeying. Okay? Does that make sense? Then he goes, then he goes on and, and attempts to, to, uh, to define this group of people known as Judaizers. Judaizers, a term not found in the Bible, but often used to identify the false teachers at Galatia with their Jewish nationalism and their legalistic doctrine. That doctrine being you must be obedient to the law of Moses, you must be circumcised, you must become a Jewish proselyte before you can convert or before you can become a Christian. Now the law provided that a Gentile might become a convert to the religion of the Hebrews. Okay? These Judaizers who would then uh, take the law of Moses, pervert it, add things to it, take things away from it, twist it, contort it, and develop this religion of Judaism, also would, would proselytize, and they would also take Gentile converts. It's, it's exactly what they're trying to do here in the church. Okay? It means to be or live like a Jew. It is a religious designation rather than a national description. Their fundamental belief was that Gentiles 
even after accepting Jesus as Lord, were expected to live as Jews. The law of Moses was to be observed, not as a matter of custom or culture, but as a necessary supplement to the gospel of grace. Okay? In other words, you couldn't have one without the other. And that's what they were teaching these people. superintendent over a child until that child reaches a certain level of maturity, certain level of knowledge and wisdom, that they can do what? They can do they can be self-sufficient in, 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 in their life. Uh, really, when you talk about education, education is not about learning about teaching people how to teach themselves. That's the most important thing. You go to school, you go to school, you go to primary, uh, you, your primary schooling lasts for 12 years and you have, then you can go to college or whatever for so many years, but at some point that all stops. Your formal education stops. That doesn't mean you stop learning. <clears throat> the only way you stop learning is if in fact you haven't learned how to teach yourself. Paul's going to take that same concept, that same principle, and he's going to apply it to the old law. Okay. What was the old law trying to teach the Hebrew people? That they couldn't save themselves. That they couldn't save themselves. It also taught them about holiness. It defined God, it revealed God to them, the nature and the character and the person of God. It established what holiness was, and in doing so, it reveals that man, in and of himself, is not holy. Don't you think the old law also taught them about sacrifice? Sure. And then, and then that way it could go into God's plan, and God's plan would be more to them. And that, that's a good point because what it what it ultimately teaches us about sacrifice is even when we sacrifice ourselves, it's still not enough. <clears throat> that holiness would come to us as a as that God would lay the groundwork for the, the foundation for holiness as a blessing 
He's going to do for ourselves, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Go ahead. Okay. Talking about sacrificing themselves. I think back about what David said two or three weeks ago when those perfect or animals without blemish were offered. They didn't know what sin was. Animals don't. But the law brought it out that we know what sin is. And even if we sacrifice ourselves, we're not a perfect sacrifice. That animal was a better sacrifice than we were. Also, that animal didn't know what sin was. I thought about that more. But and, and you think about that. You're a blemished sacrifice if you try to sacrifice yourself and Christ. Instructive on several levels, but one one is this idea of the knowledge of sin. Okay. God didn't create them to even to, to, an animal to know what sin was. Right. And and it, it's instructive on several levels. The, the knowledge of sin. Okay. Also, this idea of sacrifice and 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 an acceptable sacrifice. Remember, this is teaching us something. We're teaching the Hebrew people something. And that is that when you talk about sacrifice that is acceptable to God, we are not capable of that. 